Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast, part of the Athletic NBA Show Network. I'm Sam Amick, NBA National Writer at the Athletic, here with my guys, Fred Katz, Anthony Slater, as always. Um, gentlemen, the, the pod this week is is coming certainly with a heavier tone right before we jumped on to record kind of the latest update in relation to the tragic passing of Warriors assistant coach Dejan Milijovic. The Warriors game against Dallas at home on Friday night has been delayed. The game against Utah was already delayed the day before. Slater, you know this team as well as anybody. The tragedy has obviously rocked the organization with good reason. You know, he's 46 years old. He's beloved not only obviously within that team, but he's a guy with a family. He's a guy who's 46 years old, affectionately known as Decky. This is one of the more unique situations I've ever come across in the NBA. It's one thing when a high-profile global star like Kobe Bryant passes, and that was its own thing. This is different, right? Because not everybody knows who Dehan is, but we are learning quickly, and, and they are obviously reeling here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and I mean, I think along with what you're mentioning, you know, how it happened and when it happened is is kind of relevant here. It's middle of the season, middle of a road trip. They're at a restaurant in Salt Lake City that they, they frequent on these trips, you know, something that the coaching staff in particular, like, loves having, you know, middle of a, a you know, and this is a tense time around them, right? They're 18 and 22. They had a bad loss a couple nights ago. It's kind of, you know, I assume I was not attending this private team dinner, but probably a more, uh, you know, fun atmosphere to try to relieve some stress. And, and, you know, he collapses at that dinner and, you know, has a heart attack, is taken to the hospital, um, you know, and dies the next morning, you know, morning of what was supposed to be the game against the Jazz. So it's just traumatic, you know, in, in many ways. You mentioned how beloved he was, uh, you know, globally. We, we could talk about some of his background. Obviously, he's sure. most known for being, you know, Nikola Jokic's, like, foundational coach in, back in Serbia. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it it hit a lot, you know, everyone in the organization hard because he's popular, you know, and it's – uh I don't matter at all in this scenario, but it's strange even to me because two days ago before the Memphis game, I probably, you know, he's he's always out there pregame. He's always being approached by everybody because of how friendly he is, including international players, particularly Europeans love to come over and talk to him because of how well-known he is. But I probably chatted with him for 15 minutes, and it's, it's almost weird to think about now because we're talking, we were talking pregame about the importance of the Memphis game they're 18 and 21 they need to beat this Memphis team that had so many guys out they end up losing the game but you know our conversation was about like the importance of that game and it just feels so irrelevant now right and it's just it it gives a level of perspective on what really actually matters in the league and certainly this game against the Memphis Grizzlies matters a lot less uh when when you think about it now so he plays 15 years professionally in Serbia. You mentioned the Jokic connection. Um, admittedly, uh, I somehow, you know, for all the Warriors relationships I have, I, I didn't know Dehan at all. I wish I did. Uh, I, you, I think human nature kicks in. You find yourself 
especially knowing the the incredible reputation that he had. I find myself now just trying to soak up as much uh, information about him as I can, almost as a way of showing respect for for what happened. Um, what else do we know? You know, I wonder like his his journey to the Warriors. He comes in 2021, and not to put you on the spot, I didn't tell you off air that I was going to throw this your way, but. Uh, do you have clarity on the backstory there and how he happened yeah. to connect with this group? Yeah, so um, you mentioned the playing career, like legendary playing career in Serbia, right? Three-time Adriatic League MVP, was known as like the Serbian Barkley. He's this like six-foot-six burly dude who played like, you know, Charles Barkley in a lot of ways and, and, and was a skilled, big, uh, undersized, like Glenn ba- Big Baby Davis, somebody, somebody like that you might compare his playing style to. And, uh, you know, he, he flirted with the NBA for a while. He, he coached mega basket over in Serbia for eight years. He was the head coach. Uh, he had 11 guys drafted while he was there. And, you know, Ivica Zubac, Jokic is the obvious one. Gogo Batatze is another one. Uh, you know, Boban is, I mean, you, you guys probably all saw how many, you know, Eastern European players came out, you know, in the last couple of days and like, we're, we're, we're heartbroken over this because of, you know, how much he touched over there, but he always kind of had his eye on the NBA he uh, Hawks, Spurs, and Rockets. So 2016, 2017, 2018, he was on their summer league staffs, and then right around 2019, 20 range, he he talked to the Warriors about maybe coming over. Then James Wiseman gets drafted, has his first season, his rookie season, and the Warriors after that rookie season are trying to figure out a way to help grow James Wiseman, and their uh, part of their plan was to hire him, and they brought him over from Serbia and made him an assistant coach, gave him Wiseman. He never really got the requisite time with Wiseman because James missed his entire second season because of a, you know a meniscus tear. But he was always so uh, positive about James, and and I can remember uh, Dehan uh, leaves a road trip in the middle of uh, the you know, in Wiseman's second season in Denver and goes to Stockton, California, where Wiseman is is just getting back and he's playing his first game. Uh, you know, coming back from the knee injury, and I, I went to the game, and I remember you know sitting with Dayon for for a chunk of it, and he was, you know, and there was such a microscope on how Wiseman was going to look, uh, including for myself, right? You know, I was going to see how how this number two overall. You were in Stockton, yes. yeah. Uh, and he was like, and and you you've heard this come. I heard uh, Bogdanovich from the Hawks talk about this yesterday. He was so about like, look, just be happy that he's out there, happy that he's smiling, happy that like this human is like doing what he loves again. And like that was, that was his message that night. And it's, it's clearly hit was kind of like his coaching message in a lot of ways. Like we just, at this point we could worry over the long term how James develops into a player. Like just be happy for James, the person. And I just like, I don't know. I was kind of thinking back on that conversation uh, over the last day. And, you know, James gets traded, but, but uh, you know, he stuck around. He was, it, you know, crucial in, in improving Kevon Looney's rebounding. Kevon Looney became a monster offensive rebounder in the last two playoffs. I think a lot of that was Dehan with angles, timing, tricks, grabbing a guy's wrist and pulling when the ball's in the air and the ref's not looking, stuff like that. You know, Kevon has credited him with. And he was a rising coach. You mentioned 46. Um, so many players across the league who, who respected him so much. So I thought, you know, that he was probably on his way to becoming a head coach. It's really sad. It's just it is. I got nothing. I got nothing for you, Slater. It's just well. Then it's then just me, so. It's just so sad. Slater, I'm gonna. You know, you you, you very um, eloquently kind of laid that out as far as the backstory with the Warriors. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep learning a little more uh, as we kind of 
I think cap our thoughts on on this really tough topic. Um, what more do you know about the the Jokic relationship and the foundational aspect there? I believe Nikola was somewhere around like you know. 14, 15, 16, 17 range, uh, you know, starting to play professionally over there. And, you know, Dan was the head coach, mega basket. And, um, you know, I think Adam Morris uh, has chronicled a little bit. He actually had a video I know he put up yesterday that was kind of talking a little bit about that tutorship, you know, because there's been so much interest in, in Nicola's background. Um, but, he, again, like, I think Dehan is very was very – much known for like the skills and the footwork and the timing and the rhythm that big men play with the passing. I, I, you know, talking to him in Memphis the other day, we were talking about probably five minutes of our conversation was talking about big men who can catch on the roll and pass. And, you know, Trace Jackson Davis is a rookie for the Warriors that he's been working with. And he was, he's very, he had been very high on the way that Trace can kind of pass out of the short roll. And I say that because, I mean, he was, like probably the coach that mattered most to, to Jokic in, in his, you know, mid-teenage years and what, like, Nikola Jokic is maybe the best ever, right, as a big man who can kind of pass, see the floor. And a lot of that is instinctual and in, in what Jokic was born with. But, you know, I, I'd be curious, and I'm sure, you know, Jokic is going to talk about this at some point coming up. But I think, a, you know, a decent amount of that was the teachings of, of Dehan, uh in those years. And, um, you know, every single Warriors-Nuggets game, uh, including the game on Christmas, I was standing behind their bench. You know, Dayon will be out there, and like you know, he's with Dario Saric. He works a lot with Dario Saric with the Warriors, and and Jokic. Every time he, he's done with his warm up, he's walking down to greet Dayon, and they sit there and talk for at minimum, you know, five to ten minutes pregame and catch up. And you know, I know they they'll go to dinner stuff like that. Like you know, I mean, this is uh, this is this is one of the more important basketball people in 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 Jokic's life. All right, thank you for sharing that perspective. Uh, sincere condolences to to Dayon's family, uh, to the Warriors, to everybody who knew him. Uh, just just tough, tough stuff. And I don't even think it's worth unpacking it. I mean, the obvious context here is this Warriors season that already had all kinds of challenges, but this is a, a different level. All right, guys, there's never a, a great way to segue from something like that, um, but we are going to talk some hoop this week. There was big news uh, in the association. Pascal Siakam finally getting traded after – Really, uh, years maybe? I mean, a couple years where, where the noise had continued to build. Um, always a, a tricky dynamic between him and the Raptors because it was not a trade request, and that part should be you know, not forgotten. He didn't ask out. He wanted to be in Toronto, but post-2019 championship, they started kind of looking at the pieces on the chessboard and wondering what they wanted to do, and they saw Fred Van Vliet leave for nothing. Obviously, they saw Kawhi Leonard leave for nothing. Um, didn't want to see Pascal Siakam leave for nothing, and uh, leading up to this deadline, uh, you know, you did start to get a sense that the Pacers, who ultimately land him in this, you know, pretty big time trade, uh, were the leader in the clubhouse. And and the reasons for me, guys, going in, I, I didn't have a lot of clarity on. And then once the deal goes down, you certainly learn a lot more. If if somebody somehow missed it, the deal itself, uh, Pascal goes to the Pacers for Bruce Brown, uh, you know, who obviously uh, had gone to Indy in the summer on that two-year deal. He's got a team option for next year and, and now instantly is, is a guy that we wonder if he's going to stay in Toronto or if he could be uh, joining a contender at some point. Uh, Pacers forward, Jordan Nuara, second-year player, um, also goes to Toronto. Three first-rounders, two uh, 2024 20, first-rounders, both Indiana's and then the worst of OKC, Utah, 
Houston or the Clippers picks and then a 2026 first rounder. Um, I wrote a lot about it last night, guys, from the Siakam perspective and did honestly really enjoy learning. It was a little bit of a mystery in my mind. Like, okay, why does it seem like that the second the deal went down, that the framing of it from Pascal's side instantly went from, oh, he's going to be a free agent this summer. He's going to be a rental for whoever comes after him to, oh, you know what? Pacer for the long haul sounds pretty good. Uh, and there's a lot of layers to it. We can, we can unpack it. Um, but I, I like the fit. And Fred, you, you are the resident Pacers honk, if you will. That's not the best way of putting it, but you love your, your Pacers. Oh, big eyeball, eyeball emoji from Fred there. Sorry. You love the Pacers. You love what they're doing. You love Tyrese Halliburton and his game and his personality and his gravitational pull just kind of pulled Pascal Siakam into his uh, his basketball universe. What do you think, buddy? I think honka honka if I'm the Pacers honk, Sam. I think it's a great example of – I think the Raptors waited too long, to be honest. And I think they waited too long in general on a number of these guys. You mentioned Fred Van Vliet leaving for nothing. You mentioned – you know, another guy is is Kyle Lowry, who didn't literally leave for nothing because they turned it into a sign and trade, but but left for little uh, in in a season that they were they were tanking in Tampa, and they decided that they were not going to trade him at the deadline, and and they really just get back like Precious Achua in that deal, uh, and, and who who was not a Nick Nurse favorite at all for most of his tenure there. Uh, you know, you look through it and it's like they waited too long, I think, on OG Ananobi, where they could have gotten a ton of draft picks for him and that didn't really end up being the case. And I think they could have gotten a better deal for him last year or something like that. They made the the Jakob Pertle trade, which was just kind of just kind of odd, sending out a draft pick in order to acquire Pertle and then and then re-sign him in free agency. And I think they waited too long on Siakam. Like they got three firsts. And that sounds good in a vacuum, but Sam, you mentioned it. One is the Pacers first in 2024, which is going to be an okay first. I mean, that's going to be in the 20-ish range, right? And then the other is the worst of OKC, Utah, Houston, and the Clippers. So we can say it's either going to be the Clippers or the OKC first round pick. And that's like, what, potentially 28 in a draft that people are not excited about. And that 2026 pick is still top four protected. I, I just, they might they might be able to flip Bruce Brown for something. And I don't think given today's circumstances that it's a bad return on Siakam. He's expiring and you can't hold on to him and risk losing him. Like if, if you were going to keep him, you probably have an extension or, or be closer to an extension than I think those two sides were. And I just... I think it was the best they could have done. I don't have a problem with the haul, but I, I think they waited. I think they've been waiting too long on these guys, and I think it's hurting them in in the long term when they eventually have to trade them or they eventually lose them, and they they don't have the kind of the 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 trove of stuff that they could right now if they operated. It, it seemed like they knew they waited too long, and that's why they didn't this time around. Because, right, I mean, like, January 17th is early on an NBA trade. And the, what was the OG? Was like December or something? Yeah, December. Uh, yeah. It looked like this time around, it was like, you know, he wasn't taking it to, to you know, deadline day, uh, which, you know, maybe I don't know if the deals get worse or the deals get better uh, come deadline day, but it did seem like 
I think there was a realization from Toronto the way they, you know, screwed up the Van Fleet one that it was like, hey, it happened in this time around. And I mean, both are gone by January 17th. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, I love the fit for the Pacers. I was about to say, man, I threw you the oop and you went down the Toronto road. Yeah. We don't care what you think about Toronto. We care what you think about your Fred, Pacers. Fred, I got, I, an lo- update. I got an update for you. The Miami Heat are sixth in the East right now at 24 and 17, and the Pacers are seventh at 23 and 17. You needed this one. That means his prediction failed that that the Pacers were going to be better than Miami because now it's it's things have changed. You don't get credit for the Siakam Pacers. So you, you missed the mark on that one, buddy. They've but, been uh, yeah. they've been after him. They've been after him for two years. We talked about it like we've talked about it 17 times on the past year that that they're the Siakam team. I'm 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 feeling great about about that Pacers call. I'm feeling real good about it. They um I just think Siakam is a great fit. And if you look at what happened in Toronto, basically since they won their title, they just haven't, or maybe the season after, that season after they were still a really good team. But but they just really haven't had since two years after that title, the shooting, in order to make kind of a half court offense work. And that's been the thing that has kind of been the lead reason for their downfall. And they have tried different ways in order to combat that. One of the ways is for a little while in the pre-Purdle era, we're combining Pacers analysis with Jakob Purdle analysis. This is like <laughs> my dream. In the in the pre-Purdle era, I mean, they would play. They would play Siakam at the five, and PPE. they would just play yeah, PPE exactly. And they would just play Siakam at like the five, and that still wasn't necessarily getting necessary spacing because the other guys around him weren't really shooters. And I think what could be really awesome for him is the Pacers play so fast. They play with so much pace, both in the, I mean, people talk about how fast they play in terms of their breaking, but my goodness, their offense in the half court, once they get into their half court sets, the cutting, the screening, Siakam is going to feed off of that. There are very few power forwards in the league who are as good at getting defensive rebounds and just charging the other way. He's awesome off the ball in transition, awesome on the ball in transition. He's going to give them some very necessary defensive uh, work on the wings, and I think when you have him on the floor with a stretch five like Miles Turner, who's not an unbelievable three-point shooter, but you have to guard him, with Halliburton, who is probably the best passer in the NBA right now, or or if not, he's he's in the tier one amongst the other guys who are also the best. You've got like Neesmith, who's hit every single corner three that he's taken this year. You've got Nemhart, who's a great connector, or Toppin, who is shooting the hell out of ball, been arguably the most efficient play finisher in the league this year. Like, there are a million different guys. You know, Buddy Heald out there who you're going to have to guard. Like, Siakam is going to get to Rome. He's going to set to get to set screens for Halliburton. And 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 when guys trap Halliburton, now you got Siakam going downhill in the four-on-three. And it's going to look very different than it did in Toronto when he didn't have the spacing that he's going to have in Indiana. I mean, that team offensively, I think, is a freaking nightmare. Like it's a nightmare, and I I love the basketball fit for them, and defensively, like they're they're better, like they are they are better defensively. Siakam is is still a, a quite a good defensive player. I'm with you. I like it a lot, uh, and and let me share some of the the things I learned yesterday, and then get you guys to weigh in on them because I think they are pretty fascinating. You mentioned Fred that the Pacers had long been considered the Siakam team. Uh, I feel like I now understand why a little bit more, and I'm going to start at the top. So front office, there's all this history and all these little moments that kind of 
added up uh, in the kind of way that led Pascal to look at the Pacers very favorably. Um, the front office with Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan. Chad, if you go back to 2016, was the GM in Charlotte. Um, back then, when Pascal was not a lottery prospect uh, coming out of New Mexico State, Pascal had two teams that he and his camp were told were considering him in the first round. It was the Raptors, and it was Charlotte. Now, ultimately, did the Hornets take him? No. It took Malachi Richardson, moved him to the Kings for, for uh, uh, Marco Bellinelli. But it mattered to Pascal that you showed me a little love in the very beginning, and I remember that you saw me as a first-round pick. So big thumbs up from Pascal to Chad Buchanan. Big thumbs up. Big thumbs up on that Kings knowledge, too. The Bellinelli move right there. I mean, not many people are rattling that one off. I, I had to the look Mal- it up. Malachi Richardson <laughs> from Marco Bellinelli. Everyone remembers like, that one. Like 10 days after the draft, they moved him. They got Bellinelli. Um, now, there's a perception from Pascal and his people. Also, Kevin Pritchard, you know, considered a, a pro's pro when it comes to just being an executive and a basketball guy. There, There's kind of this holistic cultural attraction for Pascal of Indiana as like the you know the the basketball universe if you will the Hoosiers component you can tell he kind of cares about that I mean he loved Canada he loved the Toronto experience but I, I I heard some of that about how in Indiana it's just about the game it's just about the basketball and, and they see Kevin Pritchard as part of that as well now I'm going to move on to the coach uh interesting little tidbit Rick Carlisle and this was something that uh that that Pascal was aware of and that did matter to him Pascal learned last season um, that when all-star time came up and he was at the time a, a borderline all-star to get his second selection, he ends up getting put in as an injury replacement, but he was informed, uh, you know, through various NBA communication ways that Rick Carlisle had voted for him, uh, for the all-star team. That is, <laughs> that is, that is, that is all time. That is, that is brilliant. Like, so, you know what's going to happen? Yeah. The Knicks are just going to have to have Tibbs be voting for all of the CAA clients now. <laughs> just be like, you know, Tibbs voted for Towns for All-Star, and he, I don't know, Fred. he I don't voted know for Donovan Mitchell. Too, doesn't seem like they have too much trouble luring CAA. Maybe, maybe they should send him <laughs> on a different avenue in case they need to get somebody who isn't. He just has to do all CAA so he doesn't get in trouble with with the That bosses. might be true. But that, yes. All right, let me keep going here. So there's all this stuff with everybody in Indiana. Um, so Tyrese Halliburton, and this didn't really play a part, but just as far as connection points, I guess, uh, Tyrese was very close with Rico Hines in Sacramento when he was a Kings assistant, and and Rico is friendly with Pascal. So you know, you heard a little bit about while Tyrese and Pascal don't know each other very well, there was you know a guy like that you know kind of telling both sides, no, he's good people, he's good people. So that name came up. Um, more importantly, the Tyrese component, and this should not shock anybody, when you give a young player, 23 years old, a five-year, $260 million extension, guess what? Yeah, in today's NBA, he's going to have a voice. But the, So not only, not surprisingly, did the Pacers have you know Tyrese's influence and his voice matter a lot on this trade, and he definitely wanted it. Um, the context here, and I covered this back in the day, that's worth mentioning is the Pacers as an organization – you know, they did learn the hard way, I think, during the Paul George experience that, you know, that's when really call it player empowerment, whatever you want. You know, stars started getting more and more voice. Paul George has talked publicly about his frustrations in Indiana, not having the kind of voice he wanted. More specifically, uh, the time when he had he, he claims he had Anthony Davis kind of ready to roll. 
to come the Pacers way and the Pacers front office, you know, didn't uh, want to go that direction. So to have that, you know, evolution, if you will, from how the Paul George thing went to Tyrese being ecstatic that Pascal is coming, you know, wanting this trade, that matters. The last one real quick is, uh, well, two quick ones. Miles Turner is a guy who, you know, believe it or not, this, admittedly, this is one Voted for Pascal Siakam on his ballot. <laughs> <laughs> wrote, uh, wrote him in yeah. on his 2020 presidential <laughs> ballot. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. We're in the weeds here. Uh, no, not that far off, though. He, uh, People close to him tell me that when he would talk about the Raptors and who he would love to play with in Toronto back when the long-term future seemed possible there, um, you know, allegedly the list, this is a heck of a jump. The list went from Kevin Durant to Miles Turner, that in terms of like fit, that Miles was a guy that Pascal uh, felt like he would really fit well with. Fred, you hit it on the head earlier, the stretch five component, um, the, the way that they wouldn't get in each other's way, the way that defensively he would help, um, the shooting. And so the last one real quick too, mentioning shooting, um, Buddy Heald is a guy that, you know, that again, the shooting matters. Pascal was was hopeful that if he did go to Indiana, that, that Buddy would not be, uh, you know, going the other way. So he's happy that Buddy's there, too. So all that leads to the fact that it it, it feels like, barring a disaster, um, you know, it, the optimism is very high that he will resign long term. And considering he's looking for a max deal with full term, uh, we'll see if that happens, but it does seem like that's where this is headed. Well, their books are cleared to give them the big money, right? I mean, uh, whereas, you know, he was almost in Sacramento, right? Sam, you did some reporting on that. Well, if you go to Sacramento, they already are paying Fox big money. They're already paying Sabonis big money. Keegan Murray's rising. It's like the next, the third guy there that they're committed to paying big money. Like your future there is a little uncertain where it feels like in the Indiana, they're already like basically labeling him as, as the number two on the court and the number two financially there, right? That's what it kind of right. seems like. Uh, the other thing here is I think the the, <clears throat> the um, assets aren't that great that they had to give up. You know, they had to give up two 2024 20, first-rounders, which, by the way, I think we all know at this point, it's like supposed to be a pretty bad draft. Um, one of them is going to be their own, which at this point, you know, Fred will tell you that at this point that might be the, the 27th pick or something like that. But, you know, we're, 29, 29. Yeah, yeah. we're probably 29. talking about, you know, 20th pick or something like that in a bad draft. And then the worst of, of Thunder, Jazz, Houston Clippers. So really, you know, Thunder Clippers we're probably talking about. So that's probably going to be like 28th pick maybe. Uh, and then a 2026 first rounder, which is, the I think, the best asset here because you just don't know what the Pacers will be like at, at that point. So it's really like three first rounders sounds hefty, but it, to me it's not that big. And once you get through this draft, you're not. You know how a lot of these teams are, are so locked out of trading future picks? Well, after this year, two of the ones you owe are gone. Uh, they're off the books. So it's, I mean, it's very, it's a very reasonable thing to set, you know, package to send out, especially if you know he's going to be there long term. It sounds like they know. Can I, can I point out two very smart, very kind of in the weeds salary cap eccentricities the Pacers went for? Uh, which are indirectly related to this, but really help facilitate being able to make a move like this. I feel like there's going to be some Obi Toppin mixed in here. No, there's no Obi Toppin mixed in. There's no Obi Toppin mixed in. Uh, it is So first of all, two years ago, the Pacers have all of this cap room. And they just go into the season with tons of cap room. And eventually, in order, they're like below the salary floor. 
And in order to get to the floor, they decide they're going to use it instead of to trade, instead of trading Miles Turner, like everybody in the world thought they were going to do for 97 years, they decide to use it to renegotiate and extend Miles Turner. And the way they structure the extension is they give him a massive balloon payment raise in that year where they were way below the tax. So he gets like 30 some odd million dollars. And then in order for him to get all that money up front, he takes a little bit less the last two years in the extension. So he's making 20 million this year. He's making like 19 million the year after that, which is a great deal for Miles Turner. And you talk about being able to have that room and have that cap. It's just a fantastic way for Turner to get the total dollars that he wants. And economics 101 is a dollar today is worth more than the dollar tomorrow anyway. So he makes out great. And for the Pacers to be able to have that long-term financial flexibility when they were going to have to pay that money to get to the floor regardless. So that ended up working out not well, just phenomenally uh, the entire way they structured that deal and is a huge reason why they're able to make this one today. The other one, last summer, the rules change. You have to be able to get to, under the new CBA, you have to be able to get to the salary cap floor by the start of the season, not by the end of it. And so in order to get to the floor by the start of the season, because the Pacers have tons of cap room once again, they say, you know what, let's go one year just balloon payment to Bruce Brown coming off of a title with him being this essential role player on the Nuggets and really helping them in their charge for a ring. They give him $22 million for one year so they can basically get to the floor and get up there. And they say, you know what, Bruce Brown, come on in, do your Bruce Brown stuff. We'll put a team option on the second year and we'll be able to trade it, trade you. If you play awesome, we'll be able to trade you to a team that might want the team option because you're playing awesome. Or if you aren't good, then you're a big $22 million expiring salary during a season with tons of teams who are horrified about the luxury tax during all this second and first apron restrictions that are coming in and are going to be desperately trying to get off of money in a season where expiring contracts are once again this big fancy thing that everybody wants because they're trying to get off of all of this money. So they signed Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown was great for them. He was awesome. I can't imagine how he could have possibly been better in the role that they had him in. And then they still ended up executing the plan. And because they had that Bruce Brown contract, they were able to trade Pascal Siakam without sacrificing what they otherwise would have had if they hadn't said, you know what, let's pay Bruce Brown. And they kind of got criticized initially when the numbers on the Bruce Brown contract came out, but it ended up being a phenomenal move. I mean, that's that's the money, that's the salary. And, And by the way, not looked at as a bad deal at all. I could see Toronto flipping Brown at some point before the deadline and getting a pickback or something like a lot of teams will want that deal. So I, I just, two fantastic little moves that at the time seemed like kind of marginal eccentricities. But when you hit on those sorts of things, then you are able to go get a guy like Pascal Siakam, who's an awesome multi-time all-star and a great fit. And now all of a sudden, you've got this core of really good players who all fit really well together. And you're set up to be good for a little while now. And, and I just, I think, their little moves along the way have been have been really great. No, that's that's well uh, laid out, Fred. Let me end the Pacers and, segment. And I'm going to add guys. one more thing too, Sam. Yep. And that Neesmith ex- extension as well, where they get him for for 33 over three years, and now he is just balling out and playing at a level that is way higher than that contract. And they know they have locked in him in for for less than the mid level exception too. That's another one where it's like another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man. So how good guys can they be? And I ask that because everything's got a shelf life. You know, Turner's deal is up after next season. So obviously that's a bridge they'll have to cross at that point. Um, and I also ask this because the level of enthusiasm from the Siakam side is so high. And it's largely because it does appear that his opinion basketball wise is like, you know, we joke about the Pacers being ahead of the heat. Like, no, they, they are envisioning a title contending Pacers team down the line um, that that he is used to making deep playoff runs with the Raptors obviously has a ring, uh, you know, in his in his uh, on his resume. How good can they be in terms of where this is going? And as far as, uh, you know, this addition. My opinion or yeah, Fred's? Either one. I think they're probably different. I still think they're a big, <laughs> they're a big player away from like being a real contending threat, and it's going to be difficult to get that third big player, you know. Um, but Fred will probably come on and, and declare them <laughs> championship contenders now, and in, in a dynasty potentially in the making. No, I just I I still I particularly defensively, you know, Pascal helps a little, uh, but I don't I don't see them competing with like the Giants of the East and. I still think they're, a, like I said, a, a big piece away from realistically competing for a championship. Fred, before you answer, real quick context: uh, last two weeks, and this was, you know, pointed out to me by the Pacers, uh, and specifically Jim Boylan, who's part of their staff, who I talked to yesterday. Uh, they were in town. Um, last two weeks, they're fifteenth in defensive rating. So that side, it's small sample size, but it's gotten a little better. Um, and there's like this kind of internal feeling like they might finally be just, you know developing and improving a bit and then Siakam obviously gives you a little injection on you, that front. Yeah, you you know what's helped their defense. Tyrese Halliburton's out. Yeah, right he's been out for I mean four games, three games. Yeah. I mean and it's hurt their all like yeah. don't get me wrong, Tyrese Halliburton is just like a fantastic yeah. one of the well, that, league's no, best. No, I, I should mentioned that. Yeah. But you know, I mean he, like he'll that's, be back soon. Yeah. As we talk about winning on the highest level, like, you know, his defense is gonna be under a spotlight at that point whenever that comes down the line. Fred. Right. Right. Uh, de- declare your champion this year. Wow. Wow. Nick, how about a Knicks Pacers East Finals with you covering it? It just feels like Reggie Reggie Miller and What do and Fred I do? Katz what are, do I do? Which team do I cover? That's true. That's true. Uh no, I don't disagree with Slater's analysis. I'm not putting them in some sort of contender range. I I think they could get up. I think there's a world where they get up to fourth. I think that's that's definitely plausible. If they play Milwaukee in the playoffs, I'm sure Milwaukee is going to be like crap if they have to Sam, play in like a 3-6 matchup Sam or something. covering that series. He loves that matchup. Oh, I do. I oh, yeah, you do. do. 
Give me the conflict. Yeah, I'm not even oh, yeah. talking about seeds. I think we're, you know, because sure, they could be the four seed. I think we're talking about, like, playoff ceiling. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. defensively, I agree with you. They're they're not going to be there because because at the top, they're, they're too vulnerable. But they can put out some better defensive lineups now. Like, Turner is a... Is a, is a good defensive center. Yeah, he can get a little jumpy, but like he is a good defensive center, rim protector. He's mobile. He's he's good protecting the rim. Like he is a good defensive center. Siakam is going to be good on the wing for them. Nemhart can guard a little bit. Uh, Neesmith he's- has been really solid for them defensively. Like they can put together some defensive lineups in important moments where they need stops, where it's like that's not the worst. It's not going to be like, you know, it's not it's not the Timberwolves, it's not the Celtics, but it's like that is capable. That is that is going to be a sufficient defensive lineup. I worry about the ones with like you mentioned Obi Toppin, you know, Toppin on the floor, but maybe he just ends up playing way less because he's behind Siakam now, which is quite ironic if 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 Toppin, by the way, gets traded from the Knicks because he's stuck behind Randall and then gets stuck behind Siakam. Uh, but I I yeah, I'm with you. I don't think the defense is quite enough there. I don't think they're as good as those top three in the East. Uh, I could see them finishing fourth. Cleveland has been, I mean, props to Cleveland, man. Like, they have been playing incredible ball with no Garland and no Mobley. Their defense is absolutely revving right now. Their defense has been unbelievable for weeks at this point. Uh, they've, They've been the best defensive team in the league over the last few weeks, and you know, not really having Mobley for so much of the year and not really having Garland and then being able to hold this up as I think has been so impressive. I think that team when they get healthy is is really, really dangerous. But the Pacers will be good. Like the middle of the East with them and Miami and the Knicks, like those three, maybe Orlando if they can get back up a little bit, but I think specifically those three, the Knicks, Miami and the Pacers, that and we'll even throw the Cavs in there. Like that is a as a dogfight, that's that's four good teams who actually all play very different, very different identities. Like that could be a fun race. All right, Fred, you you got your dream scenario. You got us talking Pacers ad nauseum on the tampering pod. Your dreams are coming true. You're manifesting all this stuff. Tyrese is in a good place. He got help. He got the keys. So uh, Pacers are going to be a, a you know routine topic on the pod. Let's finish with this, guys. We're going to be a little bit shorter on the pod this week. I think we all have a lot going on today. Um, trade deadline season continues. The deadline February 8th is looming, gets closer. Uh, OG's off the table with Fred's Knicks. Pascal's off the table. Um, those are two guys even free agency wise this summer that, that, um, that, you know, that's a game changer on that front as well. Uh, who's next? Um, you know, we got names that we could start with, but I'll just throw it to you guys as far as high profile guys that we think will actually be on the move, uh, top of mind. What are you thinking here? I mean, the first name that comes to my mind is DeJounte Murray. Mine too. Which, yeah, yeah which I think, I mean, I think I think the Hawks are, are fully aware of how much they've fallen off. Like, I don't think they have delusions right now of like, oh man, that that Eastern Conference Finals run, that core is still there. Like, I don't think they, they feel that way about this roster. And I think they're very amenable, if not, if not hopeful, of moving Murray. I don't know if it's going to be before the deadline, but I I would be surprised if he be, if Murray began next year on no, the sure. Hawks. I think he's out, and I think it's totally possible. Like I I know Atlanta has been taking calls on him for a while from a million different teams, and I think 
maybe that's that's the first name that comes to my mind. But there there are a lot of Atlanta. Like basically anyone on Atlanta could be the answer. Quick you follow, know? Fred. You you always have good Lakers perspective, even though we we joke about you not wanting to talk Lakers. Um, how do you see that possible fit? Because for one, you know, with the Lakers, you're always going to have the the clutch sports component. And recently, the local reporting uh, on the Lakers front has been that you know, like I, you know, on record quoted Rich Paul a couple of weeks back saying that the Zach Levine situation was not a one team market, and he said if the Bulls, you know, were looking to move off of him, that you know that he wasn't trying to get them anywhere um, because it had been alleged that he was pushing him to the Lakers. I don't think Levine is happening with the Lakers. That is the intel that that everybody is getting right now. So that leaves really one prominent clutch client left on the list, which is DeJounte Murray. And and even independent of that, I think you can make a good basketball argument that he would help them. Uh, how do you see that possible fit? I think you can make that argument. I think the thing that I have to wonder, and I asked this to somebody the other day, I, I just, I want to know why DeJounte Murray isn't defending at DeJounte Murray levels this year. Like he has just not been good defensively. And I don't know the reason why. And in order for me to feel good about giving up what it will take to get DeJounte Murray, because I think the Hawks are really trying to recoup a real package. And the reason why I say I don't know if they're going to trade him by the deadline is not because they're going to decide, you know what, we're keeping him. I think just they may not get exactly what they want and they may try to see if they can get more leverage in the upcoming offseason. But I would just be so curious if I were acquiring him. I would have to know the answer. Why does DeJounte Murray not defend anymore? Is it because he is miserable in Atlanta? By the way, I don't know at all that he's miserable in Atlanta. I'm like wondering why he isn't defending. Is it because he's not happy in the situation that he's in? And thus, he's just not defending? Because if that were the case, then I could convince myself, okay, well, then if you put him in a happy situation, you're good. Is it because he got a contract extension and was like, I don't have to I don't have to play defense now. Is it because there's something schematic with Quinn Snyder that he doesn't quite quite gel with and that's not working, but doing something differently with another team might get him back? Is it because of personalities? Like I, I have no idea what the answer is, but I can't really have an opinion on if DeJounte is going to bring that defense back up because it's not like he's fallen off from this very good defender to adequate. Like he has been really just not good defensively this year at all. And I would need to know what the answer to that question is before I really came up with an opinion on DeJounte Murray because that was so much of his value and it has not been there at all. Slater, you got to jump. What? Give us your final thoughts here, either on who's next or the DeJounte stuff. Yeah, I think I think Murray's the, the, the right guy to look at because – of where Atlanta's at. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Levine. I still think, he, you know, he's a name monitor DeRozan, right? What do the Bulls do at the deadline? Uh, there's not a lot. If we're talking deadline to me, there's not a lot of, like, big names that seem, you know, ready to be on the move. Siakam was the big name. I mean, maybe you, well, you then, could tell me, me differently. Yeah, how, yeah. There's other names, but we're not going to go down the list. Sam uh, Vecini had a good piece kind of breaking down all the candidates if you want to look at it. On the website, yeah, DeRozan, Kuzma, Caruso, Quentin Grimes, all the way down. Uh, but give the Warriors loyalists, uh, give give your people what they want, Slater. What's the updated perspective on with Pascal off the table? The Warriors were interested. I don't think he was excited about anything past this season with them. Um, you know, what is kind of – I know, obviously, again, like we started at the top, they are currently dealing with 
uh, something much more important. But in terms of the roster and where they're going, what's the latest uh, outlook there? Yeah, I mean, Draymond just came back, and there's been some type of like kind of messaging of like they wanted to see prior to the deadline, like how the how they looked with Draymond in the mix. Uh, the first game back, they lose to a Memphis team with nobody out there. Basically, uh, they're eighteen and twenty-two. They have the second apron looming this summer. Uh, I think they need to decide priority, you know, over the next few weeks, which is, is it to like really try to go chase down, you know, this season and, and, and get themselves back in fringe title contention mix, or is that just an unrealistic goal? And if that's an unrealistic goal at this point, uh, do you prioritize the next two to three seasons and a reset and maybe clearing the books? And, and, you know, the big thing here would maybe be getting off Andrew Wiggins contract, you know? Um, deciding between Wiggins and Kaminga, uh, you know, you, if you keep Kaminga, he's extension eligible this summer. Uh, Chris Paul has an expiring. What do you do with that? Clay Thompson's an expiring. What do you do with that? Um, to me, I mean, unless they get creative, unless there's a name that, that we're not talking about, like, do you guys see a, a, a fix all that, that turns them suddenly back into a title contender right now? Um, it's probably not out there. So if it's not out there, then I think you need to take a bigger like you know when they were when they were having the fifteen and fifty season and had D'Angelo Russell on the roster, they traded D'Angelo Russell at the deadline for Andrew Wiggins and the first round pick that became Jonathan Kaminga. They then win the two thousand twenty two title because Wiggins was awesome in those playoffs. Then you had Kaminga coming up the pipeline. Uh, can you figure out that type of move? Something that sets you up better for the next couple of years of Steph Curry. All right, guys. Good stuff. Appreciated it. A uh, little levity uh, in the middle of the pod there after a tough topic at the top. Uh, want to, again, extend our condolences and our thoughts and our prayers to the Miljovic family, to the Warriors, um, a tough time that they are still in the middle of. In honor of, of Dehan, of Decky, as they call him, we wanted to share some audio at the end here. Kings coach Mike Brown, who worked with Dehan with the Warriors, uh, who I mentioned earlier, talked about him after practice the other day. Just sharing a little perspective on uh, who Dehan was as, as a person, why he's so sorely missed, why this rocked everybody with the Warriors and, and beyond like it did. Um, so here's that audio. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and we will talk to you next week. He meant a lot uh, because, you know, we're, we're all kind of like a family, and so you have your ups and downs with a lot of different individuals at different times. And uh, he never had an up and down with anybody. It was always ups. And that's a unique skill set to have in this business, especially when you command the type of respect that he commanded without getting too high or too low. He was here all the time, and the respect level was tremendously high. And uh, that's very, very, very unique to be able to have that with every, not most guys or all the players but every all the coaches all the players the medical people the front office people uh, he was just loved by everybody and he loved back Mike you've been in the game for a long time and these situations aren't easy like what what do you want the Warriors teammates and all that stuff like to move forward how do they how do they prepare for basketball again? I, 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 I tell you what, that's, I don't know. That, that's tough. I mean, obviously, 
obviously you have to keep moving forward in life. Uh, you know, you can't stop. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes we get lost in our own little world. And I know, uh, <clears throat> I know you, we, we had our last two losses were tough. And, you know, as a coach and being involved in that, you think, oh my God, that's the end of the world. And, and uh, the reality of it is what we do is it's a game. And, you, you know, it hopefully brings smiles to people's faces or it gives people at least an escape from their daily lives. And, and you know, when you hear something like that, it just it, it puts it all in perspective. You know, you're just like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll figure the game out. But this is like something like this should impact you. The game should, because like I said, it's our livelihood, but nowhere near what something like this does. And so you just try to do the best you can in understanding that, trying to get everybody to move forward collectively based on each individual's own time. <clears throat> Mike, I know it's fresh, um, but I do wonder. I think most fans don't don't know Dayon. When you just think of memories, they, they kind of convey the best side of, of who he was. What we're talking about. Same first thing, and and you know, people say this all the time uh, about people. I think it's an overused uh, explanation or term for big guys, but they they're like, oh, he's a big teddy bear. If if you open Webster's, he should be by that term. If that term is in with, I know it's not. Like he he is a sweetheart of a giant man. He's a big guy. When he played, you know, he was a force. He played with passion, but he's so sweet and so gentle and so intelligent, so intelligent, so approachable. It's just a just a big teddy bear that that. You just want to, when you see, you just want to put your arm around, you know. And for me, that that that's the first thing I think of when I think of that. And just his laid back, happy go lucky personality. It's it's special. <laughs>